And such kind of world will be dangerous for anyone without exceptions. And that is why we must demonstrate justice. We must change our way of thinking. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. My guest today, Alexandra Matvichuk, is a Nobel Peace Laureate. She co-won the Nobel Peace Prize last year as head of the Center for Civil Liberties, a Ukrainian human rights organization. Alexandra Matvichuk is a human rights lawyer. She has been systematically documenting Russian war crimes and crimes against humanity since 2014, when Russia first annexed parts of Ukraine. Since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine last year, her work has intensified and includes advocating for ways to bring perpetrators to justice. We kick off discussing her work prior to the 2014 annexations and 2022 invasion, and then have an extensive conversation about the nature of human rights work when one is fighting an existential war against an aggressor. I caught up with Alexandra Matvichuk at the Aspen Security Forum, where we recorded our conversation live. And this was a powerful conversation, at times challenging, and I'd love to hear what you think. You can send me a note using the contact button on globaldispatches.org. And if you are a regular listener to this show, please consider supporting our work through a regular monthly contribution. We depend on a degree of listener and community support, and your contribution goes a very long way. If you are listening to me using Apple Podcasts, you can make an in-app purchase via the subscription button, or you can go to patreon.com slash globaldispatches. And finally, if you're a free subscriber to the Global Dispatches newsletter, you can upgrade to a paid subscription. Whatever option is most convenient for you is what you should do. Thank you. Now, here is my conversation with Alexandra Matvichuk, the 2022 co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. To kind of kick off this conversation, I'd be interested in having you describe the nature of your work prior to Russia's full-scale invasion last February. 
I'm a human rights lawyer and head of Center for Civil Liberties. It's human rights organization which we established in 2007 in Kyiv. And we promoting human rights and defending human dignity for all these years. We tried always to be very flexible to the challenges which we face. For example, when Revolution of Dignity started, I, together with my team, created a civil initiative, Yevromaidan SOS. And we brought up several thousands of people to provide legal and other assistance to persecuted protesters. Just to set the context, thousands of protesters were on the streets. Many of them were beaten and arbitrarily detained. Yes, it And you was, provided legal services to support them. It was like a period when millions of people stood up their voice against corrupt and authoritarian Yanukovych government. And the government started to persecute peaceful protesters around the country. And that is why we work 24 hours a day and hundreds and hundreds of people pass through our care, people who were beaten, arrested, tortured, kidnapped, accused and fabricated criminal administrative charges. And then more than 100 unarmed protesters were gunning down in the center of the Kiev. So we pay a rather high price just for a chance to build a country where the rights of everybody are protected. But then after the annexation of Crimea and Russia's invasion of the eastern parts of the country, your work changed. Yes, it was changed even before annexation of Crimea because this was a process. And we sent the first mobile group to Crimea and then to Lugansk and Donetsk region in February 2014. And I remember that for that moment, we really didn't understand that the war started. Some green men, identified soldiers, appeared. Russia told it's not our soldiers. And it was a total mess. Now it's very predictable that when Ukraine obtained a chance for democratic transition, in order to stop us on this way, Russia invaded Ukraine. But I remember our feeling like a humans. It was so shocking that we can't believe. And what sort of criminal evidence did you seek to collect while you were trying to investigate whatever is happening in terms of violations of, of human rights law? in Russian-occupied parts of Ukraine back then? For the first several years of the war, we concentrated on a legal practice of abduction, torture, sexual violence, and killing civilians on the occupied territories, as well as political-motivated criminal prosecutions. And I personally interviewed hundreds of people who survived Russian captivity, and they told me how they were beaten, how they were raped, how they were smashed into wooden boxes, how their fingers were cut, how they were tortured with electricity, and all other horrible details of torture. And we sent numerous reports to UN, to Council of Europe, to OCE, to European Union, but nothing changed. Nobody was interested, really. And I became frustrated because I know that in that moment, when I interviewed the next survivors, the same horror is going on in different illegal places of detention which Russia created in the occupied territories. Why Russians did it? Because when you occupy the territory, you have to save control over these territories. And that is why Russians imposed terror against civilians. They deliberately persecute 
and exterminate active local people, mayors, journalists, priests, human rights defenders, any people who have some reputation among local community. So you're documenting these numerous violations of international humanitarian law, of human rights law. No one is doing anything about it. And then, of course, last February was the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. How did your work change after February 2021? Everything which we called normal life was ruined in one moment. Like the possibility to go to work, to hug your friends, to have family dinner, disappeared in one moment. And on professional point of view, we faced with enormous amount of war crimes. Because Russia uses war crimes as a method of warfare. Russia instrumentalized the pain. Russian troops deliberately cause enormous suffering to Ukrainian civilians in order to break our resistance and occupy the country. And I always emphasize that we document not just violations of Geneva and Hague conventions, we document human pain. What's an example that would be concrete and understandable for people to really learn the nature of the method of war that Russia is using? Let me tell you one story. We have now in our database more than 45,000 such stories. But I would like to tell you a story of 14-year-old Sofia from Mariupol. And she, together with her mother, her younger sister and small brother, were hiding in a basement in Mariupol last year. And one day, the family was bombarded by Russian aircrafts. And I want to quote here. I went to dig out my mother. I tried to do it with my hands because there were no shovels nearby. Some aircrafts were flying around me. I was also scared that moment, and I wanted to help my mom. I dug her up so she could breathe, and then I went to ask for help. Your brother died immediately. Your mother died after several hours when she was taken out from the rubbles. But this is not the end of the story, because when Russians killed or arrested parents, they started to deport their children to Russia with further forcible adoption in Russian families. And they don't care that these children have relatives and other members of families in Ukraine. And their elder sister, who lived in Dnipro, started to trying to find her sisters. And she revealed that they are in occupied Donetsk. And she came to Donetsk to get them back. And it was very courageous action because this young woman have 19 year old. And I know, like as a human rights lawyer who worked with torture cases and sexual violence, how dangerous for her was to go to Russian occupied Donetsk. But she came in time because just before she arrived, the Russian family came to get acquainted with their new children. And she stopped this process of forcible adoption. So you've documented all of these crimes that are happening in pretty excruciating detail, as you've just said. 
This time, presumably, people are wanting to do something about the evidence that you've uncovered. What avenues currently exist and what avenues do you wish existed for justice, for war crimes prosecutions? We face with a accountability gap, which have two dimensions. The first problem is that there is no international court who can prosecute Putin and top political leadership and high military command of Russian states for the crime of aggression. And all these atrocities, which we now documented, it's just a result of their leadership decision to start this war. Even international criminal court have no jurisdiction in Russian war against Ukraine. So we must establish special tribunal on aggression to hold Putin, Lukashenko, and their surrounding accountable. But there is also a second dimension of accountability gap. The war turned people into the numbers because the scale of war crimes grows so large that it's become impossible to recognize all the stories. But people are not numbers. This means that we have to demonstrate justice to return people their names. And we have to find a way how to provide a chance for justice for hundreds of thousands of victims of this war, regardless who they are, what their social position, what types of crimes they endured, and whether or not media or international organizations are interested in their cases. In this regard, we need international assistance. We have to ingrain international element into the level of national investigation and national justice, like a model where national judges work together with international judges. National investigators work together with international investigators. And these exist. You have like the Special Court for Sierra Leone and other similar courts that are this hybrid idea. But you're advocating to really instrumentalize that, to make that happen in Ukraine. We advocated to change the global approach to war crime justice. Because when you speak with top officials of different countries, you understand that they see like sad but normal that when you have multiple human rights violations, like during the war. It's sad, but it's normal that a lot of people will have no justice because it was before like this. But we live in 21 century. Now we have so much digital instruments which can help us to investigate what's happened, to restore the situation, to collect evidence, to identify perpetrators. So it's technically possible. We have just to develop our legal infrastructure, like we developed our technologies, just to do it. There's this line from your Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speech I find so particularly poignant. We still see the world through the lens of the Nuremberg Tribunal, where war criminals were convicted only after the fall of the Nazi regime. But justice should not depend on the resilience of authoritarian regimes. How do we get there? We have to express bravery and historical responsibility. Because it's not just Ukrainian problem that nothing works. And Russia can start this war of aggression, occupy part of Ukrainian territory, extend this war to the large-scale invasion, committed horrible atrocities, and the whole UN system can stop this. If we will not be able to fix international order, we can find ourselves in a world where countries with a strong military potential and nuclear weapon will dictate the rules of the game to entire international community and even forcibly change internationally recognized borders. And such kind of world 
will be dangerous for anyone without exceptions. And that is why we must demonstrate justice. We must change our way of thinking. Can I ask, you're a human rights lawyer. Your weapon is the law. Russia's invasion of Ukraine itself is an illegal act of aggression. The conduct of the war is through mass atrocities and deliberate targeting of civilians. As a human rights lawyer, has this revealed to you like the limits of the law? And how do you sort of reconcile what I presume to be a faith in international law with the reality of what's happening right now? As a human rights lawyer, I have obligation to document each human rights violation regardless of the sites, and we do it. And that is why I can clearly assume you that the vast majority of war crimes in our database were committed by Russian forces. And when the large-scale invasion started, I found ourselves in a very weird position. When people ask me how we can help, and if these people represent some political forces of other countries or where members of parliaments or members of governments or other officials, I had to answer, if you want to help us, please provide Ukraine with weapons. And this is something which I can't even imagine. I understood that when the law doesn't work, and I still do believe that it's temporary, that we will manage to fix it, you have to defend the law with weapons also. Well, on that point, there's this debate about the use of cluster bombs and the provision of cluster bombs by the United States, the Ukrainian forces to defend their territory. Cluster bombs are not illegal. There's no international ban on cluster bombs, but they are highly stigmatized for the fact that a certain percentage of them necessarily will not blow up and they remain unexploded ordnance and are inherently therefore indiscriminate and can kill long after the war is over. How do you approach that kind of very, I think, a tricky moral question of mm -hmm. the provision of cluster munitions? We are in counter offensive and we need weapons to release people who live in occupied territories because it's not very understandable, but occupation is not just changing one state flag for another. Occupation is mass graves, torture chambers, filtration camps, massive deportation, denial of identity, and other horrible things. But like we all know that cluster munitions is provide a huge harm to civilian. And Ukraine has already one of the most mining countries in the world. So for sure, I'm a little bit worried. Ukrainian authorities told that they will use this cluster munition only far from densely populated areas, but it will be a problem. What I want from our partners, I want from them to provide us weapons, which we ask them to provide, like Atakams, like fighter jets F-16s, like weapons which is very modernized, which can reach the long distance target and without harm to civilians because it's modern weapon. So we, for a year, asked for a first modern tank and we received it in, only in February this year. Now we're in this conversation about F-16 and still it's not understandable when the process of teaching of our pilots will start this year, next year, the year after next year. Like, 
we are very grateful for all support which we received, but the truth is when you received a modern weaponry, you will provide less harm to civilians. So on the panel just now, you said something I think provocative. It's something I hadn't thought of, that we should not just envision a Ukrainian victory, but what would a Russian defeat look like? What does that look like to you? Maybe I will start with a story that we very interconnected with our Russian human rights colleagues. And they helped us a lot during this war. They have never didn't respond to my request for help when we speak about hostages, which are in Russian prisons, or some other things. And when I ask them how I can be useful for them, especially now when they're faced with enormous repressions from the Russian states, they always answer, if you want to help us, please be successful. Because success of Ukraine will provide a chance for democratic future of Russia itself. And I wish Russia to be democratic and prosperous country. It will be much more like safe for Ukraine and for the world itself. But in order to reach this point, we have to win and Russia has to lose. Russia needs military defeat because it's not just Putin's war, it's war of Russian nation. Putin governed the country not just with repressions and censorship, but with a special social contract which is based on Russian glory. And the majority of Russians, unfortunately, still see their glory in a forcible restoration of Russian empire. Lastly, is there anything else you wanted to add or point you wanted to emphasize for the kind of foreign policy community that listens to this? I always tell that when large-scale invasion started, the democratic countries told, let's help Ukraine not to fail. But it's time to change this narrative to another one. Let's help Ukraine to win fast. Because it's a huge difference between these two narratives, let's help Ukraine not to fail and let's help Ukraine to win fast. We are bleeding. We have no time. Like, time for us converted in numerous deaths in battlefield, in occupied territories, in deep rear. Thank you so much for your time and for your work. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>